0: So, it's taken five years to find him. Now the leader of IS is dead. What does that mean for the fight against jihadist extremism? Britain prepares for a Christmas election. But will defence even get a look in? How Brexit is shaking up the world's perception of security threats and how the most vital intelligence may be lying out in the open just waiting for someone to join the dots. I'm Kate Chabot and this is SITREP. He controlled a caliphate that at one stage had 8 million people living under its brutal rule. In his name, terrorist attacks around the world claimed hundreds of lives. Well, now the life of IS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi is over.
1: He was the founder and leader of ISIS, the most ruthless and violent terror organisation anywhere in the world. The United States has been searching for Baghdadi for many years. Capturing or killing Baghdadi has been the top national security priority of my administration.
0: Donald Trump went into extraordinary detail in a televised announcement on Sunday morning.
1: He died after running into a dead-end tunnel, whimpering and crying and screaming all the way. The thug who tried so hard to intimidate others spent his last moments in utter fear in total panic and dread, terrified of the American forces bearing down on him.
0: Well, US commandos hunted down Baghdadi reportedly because of a mole inside the IS leader's inner circle cultivated by the Kurdish fighters Mr. Trump had abandoned by pulling US troops out of Syria. So what does this mean for the region and for the fight against extremist ideology? Well, let's speak to Fawaz Jarjas, Professor of International Relations at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Hello to you today. It's five years since Baghdadi declared his caliphate. Western attention has been very much focused on defeating IS. So a very significant moment.
2: Well, I think it's, it's a significant moment uh, in the short term and midterm. Uh, the killing of Baghdadi uh, basically represents a hard blow to the organization because he was the emir of ISIS and the emir of ISIS, the leader of ISIS, he was the spiritual leader and also the commander-in-chief. Uh, he presented, he provided inspiration, he provided motivation, he provided, he provided also overall uh, direction to the organization. But I think we should not really uh, start penning the obituary of ISIS. Uh, ISIS continues to be very resilient, uh, very potent ideology. It has tens of thousands of active combatants in Syria and Iraq, in Libya and Afghanistan and beyond. It has already restructured its organization. Uh, Decision-making has basically been now uh, given to regional commanders. So even though uh, the exit of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi is a very important moment, I think we will be kidding ourselves if we see that this is the end of ISIS or basically the end of of the fight against ISIS.
0: Indeed, many comparisons have been made to the killing of Osama bin Laden eight years ago. Al-Qaeda survived him, but it did change under new leadership. How and how can that compare to IS, do you think?
2: You know, people keep talking about Al-Qaeda and ISIS. Let me just give you, your own listeners, a glimpse of the differences as opposed to the similarities. Even though both Al-Qaeda and ISIS share a similar worldview, in terms of the use of violence, in terms of their ideological uh, totalitarian vision, in terms of their uh, goal, uh, ideal goal, to bring about an Islamic state. But even at the height of its power, al-Qaeda in 2001, uh, when it attacked the United States, al-Qaeda never numbered more than 1,000 combatants. And these numbers, according to American intelligence sources, uh, even though, I mean, even now, after the defeat, the dismantling of the caliphate a year ago, uh, ISIS still has about 15,000 active fighters just in Iraq and Syria. Mm. This tells you about, and also you mentioned, you're absolutely correct, at the height of its power, al-Qaeda basically controlled the lives Of almost eight, nine million people. It controlled a country as big as the United Kingdom. There are major differences, uh, operational differences, as opposed to just ideological differences.
0: Mm, Well, also with us is our defense analyst, Christopher Lee. Christopher, for all the justified praise for those involved in that operation, it did take several years to track al Baghdadi down.
1: It did, because you have to put it into look at it in two ways. One is your your operational ambition, your policy. Is this your policy? Is this what you put your effort into? Is this what you task your intelligence and gathering systems? And also the um, sort of people which set up an operation to do this. Is that what you, is a major task? Second part of it is to know where to go. Um, and it is interesting. The only connection I've always thought with Al-Qaeda and what was going on here was the fact that you needed and all organizations need an informer. Mm. They need an inside uh, line that you can trust because you'll hear all sorts of things. You put up $10 million reward money, you'll hear all sorts of stories. But eventually, you get somebody you can hear the story, you can uh, confirm the story. Uh, And eventually you can follow them and eventually get to the point of trust. And that's where we reached here, exactly as we did, uh, the same way as we reached that with al-Qaeda.
0: Well, we're also joined today by Professor Michael Clark, a former Director-General of the Royal United Services Institute. Uh, Michael, uh, Baghdadi was hiding in Idlib where rival groups linked to al-Qaeda are dominant. why would he be there exactly? Because there is a suggestion that he was trying to perhaps, or a fear that he was trying to renegotiate some kind of new deal between IS and al-Qaeda. Is that a possibility or spurious thinking?
3: Well, it's a, it's certainly a possibility because uh, I take what Fowler says, that uh, the, there is a big difference between IS and, and al-Qaeda in lots of ways, but there was a lot of comment recently that actually that is might be trying to as it were fold back into some of the structures of al-qaeda and remember al-qaeda have never gone away although they've been overshadowed by is in recent years they certainly have very strong roots And I think the other reason for um, him being in Italy was probably because it seemed least likely. It was just as as Osama bin Laden hid in Abbottabad, which is uh, very close to uh, the uh, Pakistani army base in that area. So it, it made a sort of perverse sense for al-Baghdadi to actually hide around Idlib, where he would be technically with some of his enemies. Um, That actually was not such a daft thing to do. Mm. Um, And there is this question about where does IS, you know, does it still stand on its own ideological feet? And I think it probably does. And what is its future relationship with al-Qaeda? Because these are two branches of the same essential ideological fervour but expressed in rather different ways and I think that's something that we've got to confront in the coming months probably and, and certainly years but I think we may have to confront it sooner rather than later because it's quite likely there will be an uptick in terrorist activity directed at the West.
0: Farah uh, intelligence sources say they may not have been able to corner Baghdadi, well they wouldn't without the help of this informant, apparently even oversaw construction of the safe house. Um, this relationship had to be cultivated by Kurdish fighters in Syria who were abandoned by the U.S. Uh, the timing of this is incredible. Apparently, Donald Trump even knew that they were on the on his case when he decided to pull out those U.S. forces.
2: Well, I mean, we keep talking about really the future of ISIS and where ISIS will go from here after the killing of Baghdadi. What we need to understand, and also for our listeners, is that both al-Qaeda and ISIS are symptoms of geostrategic struggles, whether between the United States and the Soviet Union and Afghanistan, or whether between Saudi Arabia and Iran and Turkey and Russia and the United States, uh, you know, uh, on the other hand. So the fact is, in fact, what we are witnessing now is intensification of the geostrategic struggles in the Middle East itself. And this is really where ISIS and al-Qaeda are both nourished. And what President Trump has done in the past few months is to pour gasoline on a raging fire by throwing the Kurds under the bus, by providing President Putin with a major gift, making President Putin now the kingmaker in Syria, and by also greenlighting the uh, Turkish attack in Syria, he basically uh, 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 unsettled the geostrategic architecture in the region and this plays into the hands of the regional powers and also gives both al-qaeda and isis basically space to stand up and increase uh, their attacks both in syria and iraq and beyond
0: but in that light then how do you see the killing of baghdadi fitting into that
2: well i I mean i I mean i can imagine i could imagine that just before he was killed al-baghdadi he and his lieutenants were very busy trying to really position themselves for the morning after to increase their attacks in Iraq and Syria. Because remember you still have, according to American intelligence services and Western intelligence services about between 10,000 and 15,000 fighters. The reality is now you have more space, more vacuum of power that allow... We keep talking about ISIS. Just to give your listeners a view, we estimate there are between 20 and 35,000 al-Qaeda affiliates in Syria in Idlib and other areas as well. So at the end of the day, to come back to the question you asked Michael, at the end of the day, uh, who succeeds uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi will be very significant, because in determining the future relationship between al-Qaeda affiliates and ISIS, we have to keep our eyes on the new leader of ISIS to see, because there there, there was a lot of blood between Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi and the various al-Qaeda affiliates. I doubted very much whether any kind of reconciliation had been possible with Baghdadi alive, Now we might see a new, new kind of a, uh, at least, pact between the remaining ISIS fighter, fighters and al-Qaeda affiliates, not just in Iraq and Syria, but also beyond and Afghanistan and other places as well.
0: All right, we'll leave it there for now. Fawaz Jarjez from the London School of Economics and Political Science. Thank you. Sit, Still to come, how Brexit's complicated the security challenges facing Britain and the wider world. Plus, does the army really grasp the new world of information warfare?
4: I think they understand that it's important. I'd be surprised if they are as dynamic or being dynamic enough in order to keep abreast of everything that's happening.
0: Now everyone has gone through the awkward experience of getting an unwanted Christmas present. Well this year It's a general election. After months of deadlock, the country will go to the polls on Thursday, December the 12th, the first December election in close to a sanctuary. Inevitably, Brexit will dominate. But what about the defence issues that could arise during the campaign? Well, earlier I spoke to Lucy Fisher, defence correspondent at The Times, who told me that while defence may struggle to be heard in the campaign, the Conservatives in particular will view it as a vote winner. I think what we're going to see is him looking
5: to talk about his pitch post-Brexit. Obviously, um, the, the core message he'll be projecting is that he can bring the UK out of the European Union. But it'll also look to pivot to talk about what happens next for the country. And I think, you know, we heard in the Queen's speech, he talked about space in, uh, as an area of investment for his government in the future, I think that that helps position him as a sort of science embracing, forward-looking moderniser um, against Jeremy Corbyn, who I think we can expect him to paint as a sort of 20th century politician with 20th century solutions to the challenges that the country faces.
0: Having said that, on defence, there are weak spots, the delayed legislation to protect veterans from historic legal action and issues around personnel numbers in the forces as well.
5: I think that that, that's absolutely right. You know, and it was central to Boris Johnson's Tory leadership campaign. You know, he signed this written vow to end unfair trials of people who served Queen and country, uh, both in Northern Ireland and overseas. And, uh, you know, he's been in post for several months now. And the Brexit drama just means that very little bandwidth has been able to be devoted to sorting out this problem, which I personally think um, it is an issue for him. I think that the British public feel that the way that many veterans have been treated and the threat looming over um, many hundreds with the reinvestigation of unsolved murders in Northern Ireland is just not cricket for people who put themselves um, you know, in the line of fire um, you know, for their country.
0: What about Labour? That They've talked about a fair deal on pay for the military, but Jeremy Corbyn still perceived by some to have a bit of a credibility problem when it comes to defence.
5: That's right. Um, I think we saw in in 2017 um, that some of his uh, shadow cabinet colleagues just about persuaded him successfully to to include uh, in the Labour manifesto pledges to retain 2% of GDP on defence spending, to commit to NATO membership and to commit to Trident. However, those pledges um, during that last campaign were somewhat undermined by the impression of ambivalence that he gave in in interviews with the media. So while I think we can expect to see the Labour Party kind of make those commitments to defence again, I think Jeremy Corbyn's heart, you know, as a former chairman of Stop the War, who's had um, quite unorthodox views on defence and national security in the past, I think it will, remains to be seen how much the public trust him on those fronts.
0: And the Lib Dems, they're likely to put something on restricting arms sales in their manifesto, aren't they?
5: Yes, that's their big that's their big theme um, in, in this area. You know, they um, are very concerned about um, the, what's happened with Saudi Arabia and the use potentially of British arms in the Yemen conflict. Um, I think also questions to be asked uh, about the, the sale of um, from Britain of um, phosphorus products to Turkey Amid growing um, suggestions that the Turks uh, may have been behind what looked to be white phosphorus attacks directed at people in northeast Syria. So I think that they will really stress that humanitarian cause. Otherwise, not a terribly strong suit for the Lib Dems to really get onto. I think that they will try and uh, remain outside that territory.
0: Yes, and the SNP, we often hear them talking about uh, shipbuilding, uh, issues like that. Given the number of defence assets in Scotland, it is likely to be a big one for them.
5: Well, as you say, it's always it, it, it's, a, it's a difficult one for the SNP. You obviously, you know, well-worn argument against um, Trident being based there, unhappy about that. But as you point out, you know, a key employer, um, the defence industry, so they have a sort of careful line to toe north of the border.
0: So Brexit obviously will dominate. Is, is it likely to be really looking at the small print to find anything about defence in the manifestos this time round? To be
5: straightforward with you, I think that that is is, is likely to be right. What, what I do think is what we'll see, because the Conservatives consider defence a strong suit of, of theirs and something they're um, trusted on, I think we'll see defence potentially used um, to parlay other core messages that they want to project. So, you know, Boris Johnson will want to talk about his global vision, uh, Britain vision and the idea of the UK pushing out east of Suez again, once we're out of the EU. You know, what's a better advertisement for that than the aircraft carrier? So I think we can expect to see sort of a lot of pictures and um,
0: defence sort of assets used to illustrate other messages. Lucy Fisher from The Times. Christopher Lee, if you had to pick out one defence issue at the top of the agenda between now and December the 12th, what would it be?
1: It would be that there's a recognition that defence is never a national uh, general election issue. Um, there's no evidence, as we've just heard, um, I don't believe it, that the British public at all interested in for example, in veterans. They're not interested in the historic uh, difficulties of Northern Ireland at all. Um, It's it's
0: been talked about a lot recently. It's been
1: talked about, but it's talked about by by the interested parties. The general public, the voting public, doesn't express any interest. The other thing is is about uh, whether you're going to get the SNP talking about uh, shipbuilding on the Clyde. There's no capacity on the Clyde uh, at the moment for, for new shipbuilding, and therefore... Think in in terms of will the things that this government has brought in place, like the the minister uh, for for veterans, uh, the minister responsible for shipbuilding, mm. will those things survive? And that will be the interest of the people. Let's say in the MOD, and let's not confuse this with what the anxieties of the MOD uh, and the anxieties of the public. The MOD have anxieties about any change of government because they think they got it straight. Uh, whereas the the public have no anxieties at all because they by and large, they're not interested. Look at the look at the uh, figures of people joining the service at the moment. They don't do it.
0: Well, as we said, Brexit is bound to dominate much of the campaigning over the next six weeks. But whoever ends up in Downing Street after the election will have a lot of other issues to deal with, not least the security challenges that we so often talk about here on SITREP. Michael Clarke, this is the topic of a new book of which you are the co-author. It's called Tipping Point. And you think that moment is only a few years away?
3: Well, I think it's with us now, in effect, in the sense that we are in the tipping point now between 2020 and about 2023. And the problem is that since the referendum, the uh, referendum in 2016, security issues have been really put on one side, you know, pending our arrangements with the European Union. And actually, there's a great deal to have to talk about. Although the EU doesn't formally cover defence, it affects defence and broader security in lots of ways. So the argument of this book is that there is already a gap opening up. And if we don't address it very quickly, we will have passed the tipping point by the time we realise it in 2023, because or roundabout then, because European security is only moving in one direction at the moment. It's becoming a very dangerous neighbourhood.
0: What does that mean then, if we we pass this tipping point you talk about
3: that we will have lost a, a lot of European security that is that the security consensus in Europe is breaking down already the transatlantic consensus in on security is under severe threat and you can already see um, that The EU without Britain is going to be less keen on standing up to Russia, less keen on maintaining sanctions, more protectionist when it comes to industries that matter in the defence business and more directly competitive on defence uh, building than is Britain. We're already now embarked on two really quite crazy aircraft schemes for the follow on to the F-35 and the Typhoon, which you know looks as if it's going to be an unhappy story with Britain and France and Germany. Germany competing over what the next generation of aircraft will be. There's lots of indications that we are diverging at exactly the time when we should be converging because security in Europe is getting worse.
0: And, and Brexit's impact on security wasn't really discussed in the 2016 campaign. It's barely figured in the endless conversations since then. In the light of what you're saying, it's been wholly irresponsible then.
3: Yes, I think that's the problem. People assume, well, this is all about economics. It doesn't really affect security because that's all NATO. And that is only true after a fashion. It's not really true when you get down to the into the weeds of it. And remember, too, that security is, always, is also about policing and intelligence cooperation. And in that respect, we're in a far, far more integrated environment than we expected to be in 2010, because the, the growth of international organized crime is phenomenal. It's almost doubled in the last five years. There are more than five 5,000 serious organized criminal groups operating across Europe. And we stand, we in Britain stand to lose quite a lot in the Brexit process if we lose our involvement in Europol and our involvement in the European arrest warrant and our access to the information systems, the Schengen SIS2 information system, as it's called. uh, There are several of them, but that one alone has 80 million records that at the moment we have easy access to, daily access. And if we have to fight harder for that access, then we'll all be a bit less secure because of it.
1: There's another side of this, uh, uh, Michael, and that is that in past years, long past years perhaps, Labour could always be relied upon to produce Trident, that uh, Labour was against Trident and then Labour became agreeable to Trident's renewal, etc. That was perhaps one of the great issues that could be hammered out on, on, on the doorstep. No longer true.
3: That's absolutely right. Yes, the, the 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 parties, in a sense, don't d- diverge now on defence in any meaningful way. They both say yes, we have to have a strong defence, but neither of them will commit to the sort of resources or emotional commitment that some of us in the analysis business think that we now need. Mm. The, the 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 commitment to defence that was okay and it was adequate after say 2001 to 2010 is no longer enough. It's no longer adequate because the situation in which we find ourselves across Europe, not just in Britain, but all of the European countries are far less secure than they were a few years ago. And for lots of reasons, which we explain in the book, uh, and we're not taking that on board. So the, the fact that we've got a sort of general political consensus on defense is not much help. When the general consensus is not to do enough. And part of that is reflected in the way the
1: society has moved, isn't it? At one time, it was necessary to have one of the geniuses of the Defence Ministry uh, make out a case for having a nuclear deterrent that is no longer necessary in, the, in our society.
0: Gentlemen, stay with us. The FBS Zip Rep. It's four years now since the creation of the Army's 77th Brigade with a brief to focus on information warfare and non-lethal ways of combating enemies. You might imagine much of that work is done in the shadows of the dark web. Not so. A lot of the most valuable intelligence is out in the open. Well, Nick Waters is a former Army officer who works for Bellingcat, the investigative journalism site focused on fact-checking and what's called open-source intelligence. It helped them to unmask one of the suspects in the Novich shock poisoning of Sergei skripal in salisbury well nick told our reporter georgina stubbs we're all now gathering information that could prove to be hugely valuable to others
4: pretty much every single person has a mobile phone that can connect to the internet which effectively makes entire populations an intelligence network um, that can feed you videos and images um, of events that happen on the ground so we managed to dox to unmask to identify the real identities behind the GIU agents who try to poison Mr. Skripal. And in the future, um, it's going to be very difficult for anyone to not have a social media history. You know, like people may be doing covert stuff when they're in their mid-20s, but if, you know, they're 17, 18, and went through like a phase where they're on Instagram a lot there's still going to be that digital footprint out there.
5: So as a former army officer then and obviously given what you do now do you think the British army and the wider military utilise open source information social media platforms to their fullest extent?
4: I wouldn't know because I haven't asked however I I get the feeling that every so often they kind of don't necessarily understand the environment which they're operating in.
5: With everything in mind that you've just discussed about sort of the information environment, how, how do you think that's going to shape conflict and, and warfare and what part do you think it will play?
4: So there are kind of two things you can pull from that. One I think is relatively beneficial, the second is not. The first one which is, I think, relatively beneficial is that people will be held to account in a much more effective way. If you think about 2003 with the invasion of Iraq, uh, you had guys taking pictures of the abusive detainees and then, you know, those pictures eventually emerged in the press. Nowadays, they'll happen a lot more quickly and they'll be investigated a lot more thoroughly, not only by the people who have the kind of investigatory skills, but also by normal civil society activists and well as well and i think that is beneficial ultimately and the second part is the negative part which is a reaction to that and the reaction to that is a lot more disinformation that's going to be floating around that already is floating around in the information environment so it's a whole change some stuff is beneficial some will not be
5: do you think the military have been a little slow off the mark to sort of earmark this as a potential issue or feature of future warfare
4: I think they understand that it's important. I mean, the creation of the Brigade, Information Warfare Brigade is quite a good example of how they've identified that it's an issue. But it's a large hierarchical organisation, and I think any kind of changes take a while to, to go through it. I'd be surprised if they are as dynamic or being dynamic enough in order to keep abreast of everything that's happening.
0: Nick Waters from Bellingcat. Professor Michael Clark, um, sites like Bellingcat appear to be ahead of the game. Is it true that the official agencies sometimes are chasing those non official ones who seem to be better understand this world?
3: Uh, it is often believed to be the case. Because intelligence chiefs now freely admit uh, in you know, meetings that they conduct and dinners that some of us go to and so on that they say that about 95% of all that they need is out there in open source intelligence. Now, of course, the 5% that isn't is is gold dust, and when you need it, nothing else will do. Mm. But the vast majority of what the intelligence services deal with now is available in open sources. Yes. But the skill, of course, is being able to gather it and interpret it. And Bellingcat, I have to say, are r- remarkably good at this. There are other organisations too. You know, other brands are available. But believe me, Bellingcat are, are really good. Mm. And a lot of what they've done is very helpful to British intelligence.
0: And it would seem that um, our own... Christopher Lee here has been doing some of his own research in open source.
1: Hey, let me tell you something. Uh, this guy called Boris uh, Morshitsky, who was the, who was Russia's or Soviet Union's top intelligence gatherer at the United Nations, he used to get almost all. He said all his information, which you send back to Moscow, from a magazine called Aviation Week, uh-huh. not from the big stories, but he'd look at the small stories. Yeah, and but what did he found out? I was well, there's this thing called Krasnaya uh, Zvezda, which you can read, and it's uh, it's you know about Russian military. Uh, and there they are with the breakdown of the Sumat, the RS-28, which is the new uh, Russian missile, which we will probably see in about two years' time in service, uh, uh, ready for a test launch. And that missile is has one great advantage that we hadn't quite figured out. It can fly or it can be launched from 100,000 feet, and it's breaking up into the atmosphere, right? 100,000 100, feet. 10 times the speed of sound, hypersonic, cannot be captured, cannot be knocked down by our own people at the moment. And there in Chris Vesta, is a complete breakdown and of the that, test that procedure. Was news to you? That was last night. Indeed. Open sources.
0: How long does it take you to find that information? Well,
1: I'm a very slow reader of Crossfire's star
0: <laughs> <laughs> What did you search though for? I mean, you just look, you're flicking through it as you do. Well, just
1: go through it. Yeah, I was looking for you know cheap watches and things like that. Which, <laughs> uh, but you always get a story like that because they're proud and to tell it, and that's the-, the thing to remember. people are proud to tell you what they know
0: and there we'll leave it, my thanks to Christopher Michael Clark, and to all of this week's guests, don't forget you can get in touch on Twitter, we're at BFBSitRope and while you're online you can sign up for the podcast, I'm Kate Jabeau, thanks for listening I'll be back same time next week, bye bye